This week we have Veterans Day coming up, and I think it's very appropriate for us to acknowledge and honor those who have served so faithfully, those who are serving now, those who served and gave the ultimate sacrifice so they're not even here for us to honor. Those people need to be recognized, and I hope that you take time to say thank you uh, to a veteran, but let's give them a hand this morning, shall we? I'm told that our own Dr. Gene Blyle was honored at the U of M game before 110,000 people yesterday with maybe other veterans for their wonderful service. And if you don't know Gene's story, he's got a book about it that is truly fascinating. But uh, thank you, Gene, and all the others who have served so faithfully. We, we are appreciative, <clears throat> and we get to worship and serve in a free country because of the sacrifice of men and women uh, like Gene. We're doing a series on praying because it's so important for the church to be a praying church. Continuing that series, let me invite you to turn to the book of Acts and the first chapter. The book of Acts in chapter 1. Years ago, in the 1960s, my dad took me to a Detroit Tiger baseball game. And it was a new promotion that the Tigers came up with to bring in kids who were under the age of 14. It was called Bat Day. Very first day uh, that they ever did this promotion. Every uh, child under 14 years of age was given a regular H&B wooden bat. Regulation size for kids, 31 inches long. I still have that bat today. And we went in, and at some point, maybe it was the seventh inning, we were told to raise our bats, and we all did, and they took promotional pictures. And we pounded them when the Tigers did something good. But they stopped that promotion because kids were also hitting each other with them. And uh, they had a few medical emergencies during the promotion. They went to something else called Glove Day. Same idea, uh, under 14, you get a glove. And uh, I was too old at that time I never got one of those gloves, but I heard the story of a gal, a little girl who went in with her dad to Tiger Stadium on Glove Day, and she was going through, and they gave the tickets, and they handed this, little, this glove to the little girl, and she looked at it, looked at her dad and said, I came to watch. I don't want to play. <laughs> and I thought, you know, that's probably the attitude of a lot of Christians when they come to church. They say, you know, I... I just want to watch. I don't want to play. I don't want to participate in this thing called church. I mean, I like the singing, and you guys have great music. And uh, it eases my conscience, and I think I need to come and give the Lord a little bit of time in the week, you know, but I don't want to get involved. (laughs) Don't ask me to play. And yet a church that doesn't get involved is a church that is never going to help the cause of Christ. And people that don't get involved in the work of the church are missing one of the most exciting things in all of the world, to be part of what Jesus is doing on planet Earth, building his church. What I find in the book of Acts is, I think, pretty thrilling when you connect it to the subject of prayer and what can happen when a church prays. Look at Acts chapter 1, the very first verse. In my former book, 
and Luke is the author of the book of Acts, so he's referring to the gospel according to Luke. You have two volumes of church history, the gospel by Luke, volume one, the book of Acts by Luke, volume two. The first is the life of Christ, and the second is what Christ does through the Holy Spirit, through the apostles, after he ascended. It's important for us to understand that when the gospel ends, Jesus is just getting started, and he begins to build his church through his people. So we read, Luke says, I write about all, or I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and he spoke about the kingdom of God. Jesus stretched his farewell out to 40 days of wonderful instruction. He gave them truth, and he gave them proof that he was alive. He told them what he planned to do in building his kingdom, and that must have been an exciting Bible study. He gave them truth, he gave them proof, and he gave them a promise. That's verse four. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. I find it interesting that as Jesus was about to leave, the one thing that he gave to his apostles, his followers, one thing that was so vital for them was a promise. They had a promise from God. Now, they misunderstood something about what this promise was for, or perhaps their focus was still too much on the kingdom that they wanted to see materialized and realized in their own time. So in verse 6, they said, uh, Lord, when are you going to restore the kingdom? Is it now? And not just restore the kingdom, but when is Israel going to be king in the kingdom? That's part of the question as well. In other words, Lord, tell us who the Antichrist is. And Lord, is it pre-trib, post-trib, mid-trib? Lord, tell us, would you, when the kingdom is coming and when it comes, what kind of position am I going to have? And will we be able to put down the Romans like they've been walking on us? Tell us about this kingdom. This is exciting stuff. And Jesus said, you know what? You guys have the wrong focus. As important as some of those questions are, they're not the essential questions. And the gift that I'm about ready to give to you, this is what I want you to do with that gift, verse eight. But you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So he talked about a promise, and he talked about waiting for the promise, and he talked about power that would ultimately come from the promise. And I think they were excited. They had a promise from God. By the way, all four of the Gospels in some way, shape, or fashion talk about this promise, this gift of God, the 
the Holy Spirit coming and baptizing them in a powerful way. Luke puts it this way in Luke 24. I'm going to send, he's quoting Jesus, I'm going to send you what the Father promised, but stay in the city until you've been clothed with power from on high. The power, the promise. You know, sometimes when we think about promises, we, I think we project upon God our experience of people making promises. And by the way, that's pretty poor, isn't it? Isn't it a, a normal uh, adage and maxim in our own society that promises are made to be broken? That's what we think of man's promise. And even the best promises of men sometimes aren't fulfilled because the men are limited. The, the women who make the guarantees cannot carry it out. We lack power. We lack integrity sometimes. Sometimes we make promises and we don't keep them. How often do you say to a friend, I'll pray for you, and you don't? Well intended, but we forget. Or sometimes we never really plan to do it anyhow, but that's how we get people off our back. Someone knocks on the door. They want to sell you something. And you say, well, give me some information and I'll look at it. No, you won't. You just want the information so you can shut the door and get rid of them. Or sometimes we truly make a promise, but we can't fulfill it because we don't have the authority, the energy, the ability. But please understand this. Behind the promises of God is the character of one who cannot lie. And behind the promises of God is the intentionality to fulfill that promise, and it comes from one whose power is not limited. The promises of God are an entirely different category. They're exciting things. They are certain things. I would encourage you to get familiar with 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 20, that in a paraphrase says this, all the promises in Jesus Christ are yes and amen for the glory of God. That means that they're accurate. They will be fulfilled. They will be realized. None of them will fall to the ground because it comes from the Father through the Son where there's perfect integrity and there is all authority. The promises of God are sure and certain and we can bank on them and we must. God gives us these promises to instruct us. God gives us these promises to encourage us. God gives these promises to sanctify us. Turn to 2 Corinthians just for a moment, uh, chapter 6. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Paul is writing to the church at Corinth, which was a very... A very confused church. They were blessed with all the spiritual gifts, but they lived in a very wicked city. And because of that, some of the Corinthians who professed to know Christ were living too much like the people in the city themselves. They were adopting sinful practices that were popular in their culture. And so Paul says to them in 2 Corinthians 6, I want you to give up these idols. I want you to give up this Wicked lifestyle. Verse 16. 
I'm going to dwell with you and I'm going to walk among you and I will be your God and you will be my people. If you come out from among them, if you separate from their practices, don't touch the unclean thing, then I will receive you. So God makes this wonderful promise. We'll have fellowship walking together, a unique relationship. I'm your God, you're my people. But you must be done with sin. It's the very same thing John said. If you say that you walk in the light, but you're filled with the deeds of darkness, you're lying because God is light and he cannot have fellowship with the deeds of darkness. Now, in chapter 7, we have a very unfortunate chapter division. For those of you that don't know, God didn't put the chapter divisions into our Bible so we can criticize them. Uh, Men did it hundreds of years later, and for the most part, extremely helpful, but here's a bad one. The reason why I know is because it starts out with the word therefore, which means there has been some information important to this conclusion. So you've got to go back to chapter 6 before you can understand chapter 7, verse 1. Therefore, because you have these promises, embracing these promises based on this wonderful promise that God will take you in even if the whole world kicks you out, I want you to live a life without filthiness, to get rid of the sins of the flesh, and perfect holiness in the fear of God. Use the promises to become more Christ-like to say no to sin and yes to him. The promises of God are designed for your growth in grace. Peter says the same thing in 2 Peter chapter 1. He says, I want you to participate in the divine nature, that is to display the nature of God through the way you live and the way you think, the way you speak. And to do this, God has given to us exceedingly great and precious promises. He just kind of multiplies and layer on top of layer of adjective to describe how wonderful the promises of God are. By the way, Peter calls the blood of Christ precious, the faith that we embrace precious, and the promises of God precious. Why? Because they draw us to him. Because in embracing the promises, we receive the benefits that he offers to us. Because when we, when we uh, embrace those promises and we live on them and depend upon those promises, our life grows Christ-like. And every promise of God is reliable. Now, even though the promises may be delayed, the promises of God are never frustrated. They'll always be fulfilled in their perfect and proper time. And you and I can live lives of great encouragement and praise. Why? Because our future is as bright as the promises of God. I think the biggest challenge, first of all, is when we read the Bible to determine if the promise is for us or not. Frankly, there are some promises I don't want. God promises to destroy the wicked. I don't want that promise to be played out in my life. We used to sing, every promise in the book is mine, every jot, every tittle, every line, and I understand the well-intendedness of the author, but it's not true. But there's a bunch of promises that are for us. 
And even when given to someone, there are general promises that are applicable to any believer, and we need to own that promise as ours. And that's the second problem. When we read our Bibles and we legitimately see that a promise can be ours, we don't embrace it. We don't take it to be ours. We don't own it. How many promises from God have you owned this past week? Made your promise. Because by faith, you've prayed it back to him and said, I want this one. I'm going to pray until this one's realized in my life. Your future is as bright as the wonderful promises of God that are yea and amen in Jesus Christ coming from a God who cannot lie, a God who has all power, filled with integrity, has all authority, and his desire is to bless you. So God's promises, they're important. Now, some of you might think, well, if God makes these promises, I mean... Why should I pray, right? After all, if God knows what I need before I pray, why pray? If God's promises to promise to give me something, then why ask for it? The answer is pretty simple. Because God tells you to. You have not because you ask not. God's design, God's plan for us to receive the, bes- the blessings, the benefits that he offers is prayer. And that's why it's, I find it fascinating that once these early Christians had the promise of God given to them, they then established a prayer meeting. Look down at verse 12. Actually, you have the ascension that took place. Jesus rises up, goes into the heavens from the Mount of Olives. The disciples stand there gawking and gazing up into the skies. And angels say, why are you looking up into heaven? You men of Galilee... The one who went up to heaven, Jesus, is going to come back just like he left in the same manner. He'll come back to this earth, and there's the promise of the second coming of Jesus Christ. And so the disciples, I'm sure, were pretty excited. They had now two amazing promises. One, the gift of the Spirit. One, the return of Jesus. One was going to happen in a few days. The second promise about the return of Christ was going to happen... It hasn't yet. (laughs) And they've been waiting 2,000 years. And that's something else about about the promises of God. He fulfills some of them rather quickly, and some of them seem to take a rather long time. But we've got to trust him and live on those promises. God said, I want you to live on what I have promised. I don't want you to live on trying to understand everything. I want you to live on simply believing me. So verse 12 tells us that after Jesus ascended into heaven, they returned to Jerusalem from the hill called Mount of Olives, Mount Olivet, a Sabbath day's walk from the city, which is about a half mile to three quarters of a mile. They went back into the city where the upper room was, the place where they had been staying, the place where they were staying, and they had a prayer meeting. Now, I find it significant that several groups are specifically mentioned as attenders to this early church prayer meeting. First of all, you have the list of the apostles, the leaders of the church, 
Those present were Peter, John, James, Andrew. Same list, in fact, it follows the same order that you often find in the Gospels with one exception. Judas is not in the list. There's only 11. One is gone. It's a sobering thought. To be numbered among the people of God, the visible church, and then yet someday to find out that you're not part of that church. You never really believed. Another group that attends is uh, the women. Verse 14, they all join together constantly in prayer along with the women. And Luke tells us specifically some of these uh, who these women are. We know there's Mary Magdalene. She was probably there. And the mother of Jesus was there, mother of James, uh, maybe Joanna, Susanna, some of these others. But there's a group of these godly women who remain faithful even when the disciples fled. They're praying. That's significant. And then the mother of Jesus with his brothers. What is so significant about this is that they were not always in lockstep with Jesus. We read in John chapter 7 and verse 5, even his brothers did not believe in him for most of his earthly ministry. And at one point, even Mary, yes, Mary was involved in the family where they came to Jesus and basically Mark chapter 3 verse 21 says they thought he was out of his mind. Mary is an amazing, blessed woman. She doesn't have to be perfect for Jesus to be perfect. Mary needed a savior according to Luke chapter one. Jesus is the one without sin, not his mother. And she had a problem at one point in his life understanding all that he was doing. But they were at the prayer meeting. The leaders of the church, the women of the church, and even those who weren't part of the church for a while. It's an interesting group. And what they do in verse 14 is to give us a wonderful pattern for what we, make, what we might call corporate prayer. That is praying together. Praying collectively. You'll notice, first of all, there was unity. For they all joined together. Their requests, I'm sure, were similar. They were praying for the gift. They were waiting for the gift. They had the promise, but they were told to wait a few days. It's going to be about a week and a half that they have to wait. They were praying constantly. So here's a sense of persistence. Here's a sense of commitment. And prayer itself shows dependency. When we truly pray to God, we're confessing that we cannot do it alone. Spiritually, we are poverty-stricken. We are paupers. We have no wisdom. We have no power. We have no insight. So there's unity. There's persistence. There's this sense of dependency. And there's a sense of equality. Because you've got the women praying with the men. Somewhere along the line, it grew up the idea that women and men should not be together as they worship or together as they pray. Now I think there's some value in them praying separately at times and, and uh, coming at uh, studying biblical truth that is in particular useful for them. But we need to understand that when it comes to the body of Christ, there is equality. 
Have you not read what Paul said in the book of Galatians? There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither bond nor free. There is neither male nor female in Christ. We are all equal in Christ. Now that doesn't mean that Jews stop being Jews or Greeks stop being Greeks or the people in prison were suddenly released or men aren't men and women aren't women. There's still differences. But in Christ there's equality. And here they seem to be praying together. The prayers of women are so vital for the success and the progress of the church. And here they are praying. They've embraced the promise of God and they're gonna plead that promise until it's fulfilled. The promises of God are not superfluous. A prayer is not superfluous to the promises of God. Prayer is mandatory. That's how God blesses and answers the prayer. So these people are living in between the promise and the power. Did you notice that? They were given a promise in verse four of chapter one, but if you go down to verse eight, we read that when you wait, you're going to receive that gift of the Holy Spirit and you'll be my witnesses. You'll receive power from the Spirit to articulate the message of the gospel. So the Bible tells us that between the promise and the power is something called prayer. And maybe even to be more specific, a unified church praying together. And when the church begins to pray, amazing things happen. You know, we're living in the period of the in-between. We're in between the two comings of Jesus Christ. First Advent Christmas, second coming of Christ. It's a promise he gave us, but not yet realized. We're living between the offer, the promise, the guarantee, and the fulfillment. And living in between is not easy. Living in between jobs, living in between houses, or relationships, living in between creates a sense of uncertainty, uneasiness. But God says you have the promise, bank on it, pray it, and watch me do, watch me work, watch me do what you cannot do. And so that's what this prayer meeting is all about. And did they receive power? Look at chapter two, the very first verses. They had power. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together praying, and there was a wind that they could feel and a wind that they could hear. They could see the results of it. There were tongues of fire, what looked like tongues of fire that they could see. And then power was unleashed in this one visible way. People who had never studied languages now were speaking in languages to people, to people who knew that language so they could hear the gospel. 15 different dialects. And they're proclaiming the gospel message and as they proclaimed it and told witness to people and, and told people about the risen Christ, Peter preached a sermon. At the end of the sermon, 3,000 people trusted Christ. Jump down to verse 41. Those who accepted his message were baptized. About 3,000 were added to the number. Now we're told in chapter one, verse 15, there were 120 people praying. That's a small group. 
They didn't have resources, they didn't have political clout, but they had a promise, and when they prayed, the power of God came, and thousands were converted. And those people, once they trusted Christ, were baptized. Probably many different disciples were baptizing many others, and they they most likely were using the the Jewish purification baths, the, the mikvahs, that are all around the city of Jerusalem. What an amazing thing that was. The power of God was unleashed. And because prayer was so necessary, the Bible tells us in verse 42, they devoted themselves to it. They devoted themselves to doctrine. They devoted themselves to fellowship. They devoted themselves to breaking bread, which might be the Lord's Supper or just having meals together. And they devoted themselves to prayer. Why? Because prayer works. We read in Colossians chapter four, verse two, Paul said, devote yourself to prayer. This is God's means for fulfilling the promise. Let me just give you one quick illustration of the power of God in the book of Acts, chapter 12. Turn there just for a moment. Here's another example of a powerful church prayer meeting. Persecution had hit the church Herod realized that the Jews were pleased when Christ's followers were executed. He killed James, verse 2. The mighty apostle James, one of the top three, Peter, James, and John, he was executed by the sword, and that pleased the Jews. Please understand this. When you follow Christ, even as a godly individual who seeks his will and prays, that doesn't mean that just good things are going to happen to you. This was a huge loss to the church. Herod became bold because of this, and in verse 3, he seized Peter also. Now he's going for the top apostle, the one who's mentioned first in every list of the apostles. And he apprehended him, verse 4, put him in prison, had 16 different soldiers watching him, four at a time for four hours, and then the shift would change. He was chained to the wall or to the guards and there was a bolt on the door and probably a couple other bolted doors and they were in Fort Antonio which probably meant there were soldiers everywhere. Peter was not going to get out. And by the way, recent history is not too encouraging. Peter's going to be brought forth probably the next day and executed just like James was. But, verse 5, so Peter was kept in prison but the church was earnestly praying to God for Peter. It's a great description of corporate prayer right here, isn't it? First of all, their prayer was to God. That's an important thing because sometimes we don't pray to God. You and I pray to ease our own conscience. Doesn't make a difference who you pray to, just say a prayer. Like the prayer has power. Prayer doesn't have any power until it links with the almighty power of God. So when you pray, pray to him. Don't pray to those who are listening around you. Pray to him. And it was prayer by the church, corporate prayer, collective prayer. It was prayer with passion. They prayed earnestly. They prayed with purpose. I think their prayer was probably twofold. Lord, save us and save Peter. Might have been in that order. Some might have thought Peter was a goner. Lord, protect us. Maybe they were praying that the gospel would still go out powerfully in the midst of this persecution. 
but they had specific prayer. And then they prayed with great results. Peter's released. An angel comes in the middle of the night. The chains fall off. The door opens, and Peter is free. And he comes to the prayer meeting. Isn't this significant? He comes to the prayer meeting, knocks on the door. They send the servant girl, Rhoda. She opens the door or hears that it's Peter, tells everyone that's praying for Peter's release, it's Peter, and they say, you're crazy. That God would answer prayer? And that's where we are as a church. Not just us, I'm just talking about the church in the 21st century. That's where we, we are. We're shocked if God answers prayer in some amazing way. But they found out it was Peter, and they praised God for his power, and God still is doing miracles today. The secret is a praying church who prays to a sovereign God. You say, but that was pretty supernatural, and that was way back then, you know, and the angel was involved. Well, I like what Thomas Watson, the old Puritan, said. It was the angel who fetched Peter, but it was the prayers of the saints who fetched the angel. And when we pray... God does amazing things. We don't do it. God does. But he does it in answer to our humble prayers, our collective prayers, our passionate prayers, specific prayers. The Apostle Paul prayed in the book of Ephesians that we might know, that we might be strengthened with power out of his glorious riches, his unlimited resources, that we might be strengthened with power by the Spirit in our inner man so that we might have Christ dwell in our hearts by faith. That was the first request. Second request, once you are established and rooted in this love, Paul says, I pray that you will have power to grasp the love of Christ. That all the saints together will realize how high it is, how deep it is, how long it is, how wide it is. That we might understand the love of Christ and so by his spirit be brought into the fullness of Christ. That's the second request. And then the benediction is like a third request. Thou unto him who is able to do immeasurably more, exceedingly abundantly above all we ask or imagine according to the power that works within us. The word power is mentioned three times. Power to know Christ living in us, power to understand how great his love is for us, and the power of God working through us to change the world. This isn't just something God wanted his early church to experience. This is something God wants the church in the 21st century to experience. It was in 1960 that the Simba communist rebels took over a town in Zaire and arrested a bunch of people, especially Christians, and one of the Christians they arrested was a pastor by the name of Z.B. Dale, and he was put in prison. A few days after that, there was a special political holiday for these revolutionaries, and in the town plaza, the I Do Plaza, they were going to bring the prisoners out and execute them in celebration of their revolution. They piled the prisoners into two trucks. Zibidea was in one of the trucks. But one of the trucks wouldn't start. So they had all the prisoners get out of the trucks, and they numbered them. One, two, one, two, one, two. The ones get in this truck, 
The twos go back to prison. The ones got into the truck that worked, they were driven to the plaza and all of them executed. Zibi Dayal back in his prison was allowed to live a little longer. And he was sharing the gospel with other prisoners and eight people came to faith in Christ. And then something happened that appeared to be a mistake. He was released. One of those clerical errors. He was free and let go, and he went back to his church. And when he opened the door of his church, there was his church on their knees praying for the release of Zebi Dale. And there he was. Doesn't that sound like Acts chapter 12? We've got a promise, and it's a promise of power if we will but pray. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, I ask this morning as we conclude our time of worship that you will help us to see how strategic it is to lay hold of the promises of God. And as it says in the book of Isaiah, give you no rest until they are fulfilled. To beseech your throne and plead your cause in your time according to your will that your power would be on display through your church. Lord, we appreciate all that you've done in our midst and we simply pray that we will be more faithful and experience more of your love and your mercy and your power so that people will come to saving faith in Christ and so that you will get all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen.